And now for another Ember Weekend. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson. We've been working on a lot this weekend. First off, I have an application that I'm converting over from basically just jQuery and JavaScript soup to uh, an Ember app. And one of the things I you know, immediately started doing was uh, trying to work with authentication client-side and came across Ember Simple Auth and thought I'd give it a try. Yeah, I think Ember Simple Auth is one of those libraries that's been around for, for quite some time, like pre-add-on age. And it's got a lot of history and, and, you know, looking through your examples, it actually was pretty simple. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there, there were some gotchas and some things I had to figure out. But in the end, the amount of code that actually you know, needed to be in place to get the, you know, the effect I wanted was actually pretty small. Um, a lot of the issues I was running into were basically just upgrade issues. The fact that I was on like a canary version of Ember and Ember Data. Right, right. And so so with the Ember Simple Auth, uh, you're using other libraries as well, right? So how, how did they integrate together and how was that, you know, how, how difficult was that to do? Well, right now the, uh, the application I'm replacing doesn't even use, uh, you know, a front-end framework. So there is no token auth at all. Um, and I'm assuming since it's a Rails app that I'm going to use some some gem to give me low auth too. Um, so that's basically what I'm doing is I'm just stubbing out the back end with Mirage. Um, that's working pretty well. Yeah, Mirage is pretty awesome. So yeah, so you mentioned you're stubbing out with, with Mirage. Um, has integration there been a pain point or it should just be what uh, Simple Auth requires you to implement sl- uh, the slash token as a back end? Yeah, that was it. Uh, just implement the post to slash token. Um, and then I check, you know, some predetermined like you know fixture username and password um, respond with either a 401 or the bearer token um, and it all works pretty pretty well that's cool so you were able to to get up and running with the uh, ember simple auth and mirage like what how, a day how long did it take you to, to do it uh, just during open source time so maybe three hours or so and then last night i came across some testing helpers for simple auth um, that basically just give you uh, the ability to invalidate a session um, and that you need to do that because for QUnit in the browser, it's using local storage to add a session token. So it has to clear that out before each run. Oh, that's cool. So basically, you just implement some before hooks and, you know, session session valid valid sessions and invalid sessions can be created pretty easily. Right. And the next thing I need to work on is actually getting the, uh, the validate session to work like I want. Um, because I need to actually provide a user, like say, given this user is logged in. Um, and right now they give you, I think... Uh, valid session mm-hmm. as a helper but that's not uh that's that won't won't solve the problem for me um i need to actually be able to say given that this user signed in um because the what they see is dependent on what user signed in right um and right now valid session just says you can see such uh pages that require validation okay cool so it's kind of it, it would be more nuanced or if you need more nuance you have to go a different direction yeah right it doesn't seem like simple auth actually gives you current user um, it's really just gives you a session, which is basically just the token. So I'd still need to do the work. At that point, you could stub out a current user with Mirage and then have a service that pulls it. And you wouldn't necessarily, you could kind of, in your test anyways, you could bypass the need to have a valid session, right? Yeah. So I think what I'd, what I'd end up doing is using, like you said, a service um, for the current user. There's a little bit of trickiness in there because Simple Auth uses a initializer. Um, so I'd have to have, um, I would like to be able to say session current user, or maybe have, um, anything that gets session already through simple auth should have current user. So, uh, um, I would like to be able to just say session dot current user, which means that I need a service to basically attach something to the initializer. Um, but yeah, I, that's, that's gonna be pretty easy. And I think then I'll just have the, uh, a user's route that responds to slash current. Huh. That's cool. And you're going to have, uh, examples of this, uh, in the show notes, correct? 
yeah, I'm going to have to put together a little, uh, a little gist that covers how to do this. Uh, the, the project's actually a, you know, a client project. Cool. Cool. So, uh, so the next thing we want to talk about is, uh, kind of related to our first story, more testing stuff. Uh, so I know, uh, you know, you and I come from a background where we use a lot of cucumber uh, and capybara specifically, and capybara gives you, uh, you know, a few helpers where you can basically find text, uh, any text on a page, and it'll give you the element that contains that text. And that's pretty cool. Um, so, I mean, QUnit has some sort of rigidity around, um, you know, tying things to to DOM selectors. And there are ways to get around it and make it, it fine, but there's a pseudo selector called uh, contains that you can use. And uh, and you've put together a, a QUnit assertion helper that kind of helps wrestle with some of these issues. You want to walk us through that? Yeah, so um, one of the issues that I had with this is uh, I don't I don't like tying uh, my tests specifically to the you know the HTML elements, um, especially with integration tests. Uh, it's one thing with a component where you know you're kind of you have this contract that like that thing is an H1 or a, an anchor, um, but in the integration tests, I really just want to test that there is some text there. Yeah, more it's more it's more from like the user's perspective where it's like I want the user to click the sign in. Uh, link button it doesn't necessarily matter i just want them to do that yeah so um so sometimes you have um a button you know the user sees a button but behind the scenes that could be a, a link or it could be a button or it could be an input um and the user doesn't really know so to me the acceptance test should just say you know there's a some generic button thing that it needs to that a, the user needs to click and this should be able to click anything that looks like that so it should select based off of text in the case of a button or a link, or based off of value in the case of an input. Um, and so basically I just put together this helper that you can search the text inside of uh, elements and get back a list of all the elements that contain that text and do things like assert that there's one of them or um, click, you can you get back the elements so you can call click on that. Right, does your helper uh, prevent um, ambiguous matches? So if there were two buttons with the same text, would it? How would it handle that? Or would it? You basically have to. You it's going to click the first one or the last one, or, or is there any be- default behavior around that? It actually doesn't do any assertions. Um, and w- one of the reasons I did that was because um, if you said like expect two in your test, and then I did an assertion that would count as one of them, so I didn't want to do any kind of asserts. Right. So I, I don't. I can't really protect on that. Right. Right. So uh, one of the interesting things about contains is that it actually will uh, return each uh, node as it goes down uh, from what HTML uh, that each one that contains it in an array. So it'll have a node for HTML, which has all of the HTML, and then node for body, and then node for you know your view or whatever. How are you? Um, well, I actually kind of no. I'm looking at the code. Luckily, I'm looking at the code because it's kind of complicated. Um, how are you managing to uh, filter that list down to the element the the lowest uh, the, the the leaf node of the element. Uh, yeah. So when I, when we first used the contains, I noticed that immediately that that there were you know you're getting everything on the way down the chain, and I thought I was going to have to do some complicated you know walking of this of this tree. And luckily, I found this Stack Overflow answer where where somebody is asking the same thing. How do I just get the one thing that actually contains it? Um, and the the person who answered uh, gave a pretty concise uh, but kind of cryptic uh, jQuery chain um, and. They all they seem to work pretty well. You got to leave it pretty commented though, because it's it's kind of <laughs> hard to follow what's what exactly is going on. Because uh, basically, you get the contains, you do a filter on that, you clone each thing as you're filtering, uh, remove all their children, and then see whether it still contains the text. Um, so it's kind of complicated, um, but it works pretty well. It's a lot a lot shorter and a lot actually it's 
probably more easy to understand than the 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 for each loop you'd have to do. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. With the comments um, in place, this is actually incredibly concise and really simple to follow. Um, I think if if it didn't have comments and it was just chained, like I know a lot of jQuery authors like to do, uh, where it just said clone dot children dot remove dot end dot filter whatever, that would be really difficult to follow. But um, I think this is pretty cool. It's a really neat way to uh, to to kind of mitigate some of the risks of using contains. Right. And the other thing that this does is that you also, when you're, when you're saying find this text, there's other types of text that users can see, like what's in a button. And those are inside of uh, the value attribute of the element, not, in, not nested in the text content. Um, so this actually, at the end of this, uh, will, does another search off of that and finds all the elements that have that text as the actual value, and then does a distinct uh, merge. That's pretty cool. That's very neat. Yeah, so we'll, we'll put those in the show notes. Um, you know, feel free to give me some feedback. Uh, let me know if I can change anything to make it a little more uh, robust. I'd like it to be useful and maybe pull it out into a, an add-on or something. Yeah, yeah. I definitely like the way this cleans up the acceptance tests. It makes them look very, um, very clean, and it allows you to change the templates, the underlying templates, without really, without really too much hassle. Yeah. It's pretty cool. And the next thing we're going to talk about is an RFC by Tom Dale. A very recent uh, RFC, I might add. Yeah, I think it came out like 12 hours ago. 12 hours? Yeah, I was just about to say that, yeah. But not for you people in the future. Yeah, you guys you guys listening in the future, there are probably already comments here. So the uh, the RFC is about, um, it's, it's titled uh, Component Unification. It's basically changing the templates to represent the outer HTML of the uh, component and not ju- just the inner HTML. So that means that if you define a component called, you know, my-thing, uh, then it's that would actually be the top-level node inside of your template. And that lets you do things like add classes or IDs, do things with the attributes uh, of basically the, the class version, the, the, the blueprint version of your, of your component. Um, and then when someone uses it, they refer to it as you know, my-thing, uh, and they can give it attributes, and those are basically the instance attributes so they don't affect all of the other instances. Yeah, I really like this. Um, the, you know, it didn't really click with me until I saw the uh, the tests, which there are copious tests uh, attached to the RFC. So, for instance, uh, if you had a my table uh, component, which is just a table that has some things in it, um, you could say uh, in the application uh, handlebars template, you could say something like class equals b, and that's basically the instance level of the component you're trying to invoke. And then inside of my table H- uh, HBS, so it's it's a uh, it's template. You can say class equals a. And then when it's actually invoked, those classes will be merged to be class A, B. And I think that's really neat. Uh, it's going to offer a lot of like customization kind of options where the at the time of invocation, you're going to be able to do really dynamic things and still have a lot of uh, control at the template level as well. Um, yeah, so that RFC is, uh, is up and, uh, and ready for, for comment, obviously. So be sure to check that out. Read those RFCs. I, you know, I, I'm really happy that we get to cover some of these RFCs and that there are so many of them. I think it's a really important part of the community. So uh, as we do pretty much every time we cover an RFC, uh, we're going to encourage you to go and take a look at it and, you know, comment and let people know what you think. The next thing we're going to talk about is uh, a new add-on and blog post by Lauren Tan uh, or Sugar Pirate. Uh, if you want to, if you want to go by by Twitter handles, which I, I like to do sometimes. Um, and it's about breadcrumbs. So breadcrumbs are pretty useful. Uh, and uh, and this is a really cool implementation of, of breadcrumbs in Ember, and it allows for a lot of flexibility. 
so the most interesting part about this uh, add-on was the blog post that accompanied it um, a couple of days later uh, that basically took you through, you know, how the add-on was built and kind of the, the you know, why things were done the way they were, little uh, gotchas and things that if you first just looked at the source code, you wouldn't really understand why they're that way. Yeah, I particularly like the Esprima bug where if you do, um, there's an Esprima issue around using uh, const with uh, get. Yeah, it was it was about uh, it was actually about destructuring. Um, I think that right. Git is some kind of reserved word, or Suprema looks at it as, an, as a reserved word for Gitters, um, and so it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the blog post is very thorough, and um, the you know it, go, it explains basically each section of of the source code um, very well, and has a lot of kind of a, a you know insider information about um, why things are done that way. Um, actually, about some some dockyard practices that you know you might be interested to learn about. Yeah, I definitely think that the the blog post um, explaining the process of creating the add-on is is the real value. I mean, if you have breadcrumbs, that's fine, and and this will be a great add-on for that. But I think the explaining the developing of this of this add-on is really really valuable. Just knowing a little bit of the gotchas and why, and you know, the process is pretty cool. Yeah. And next, we're going to talk about um, kind of a a case that everybody runs into eventually, uh, where you have nested components. Um, and you're wanting to trigger actions from a child component to a parent component, um, but for some reason they're being skipped and going straight to the controller. Well, yeah, this is specifically with regard to when you yield a, com- a child component. Uh, if the if the child component is inside the template, then the actions will bubble correctly to the surrounding context, which in this case would be the parent component. So uh, I was sitting in IRC, and this actually happened to me. Uh, I ran into this where I was on a project, and uh, the, the new... Uh, Block parameters for components is uh, is still something that I struggle with sometimes. So I went in and I was like, hey, you know, if I yield a component uh, inside a child component inside of a parent component, and I want the action to go to the parent component, but I'm yielding, uh, how do I do that? And the helpful folks at the uh, EmberJS community uh, Slack channel they showed me the correct way to do this, and it's basically you you can yield this, which would be the parent component inside of the parent components template, and then in the parent component when you invoke it you can say x parent can as parent and then in the child you can set the target to the parent that you just yielded and that will correctly bubble up from a yielded component and this is kind of cool because you actually do want the actions to go to the surrounding context which when you yield a component would be maybe a controller or another component uh, but not necessarily the parent component and uh, doing it this way re- like requires you to be explicit about it so the interesting uh, part about this uh, this approach is that uh, you have to actually yield this from inside of the the component, um, which means that you have to opt into the ability for a no, for a child component rendered with a yield, or you know inside of a block, uh, to to send uh, actions to your component. Um, so you you're not going to accidentally start capturing a bunch of things that you didn't intend. Um, and it also means that child components can um, some of them can target their parent and some of them can target their context. Um, so it's an interesting way to get around kind of undesired behavior by having to be explicit about it. Right. And, you know, this, this, was, so, uh, this was so commonly asked that since I asked this question maybe a week ago, I've seen in the Slack channel this, ask, this question asked three or four more times. So I know some of the, some of the folks in the, in the channel have been theorizing or talking about maybe getting a frequently asked questions list together and putting this on there and then trying to find other common things, common problems, common friction friction points, and trying to, to get some frequently asked questions out there so people will have a resource to, you know, first first check here, 
do you have any, you know, like, is your problem not listed here? And, you know, hopefully that'll save a lot of time for people. So I think this is a really cool uh, thing. And if you're not in the Ember.js Slack channel, uh, the community channel, you should be because I got to tell you, it's awesome. It's The people are super helpful there. It's very, very active. Um, I see a lot of meetups uh, there as well. Um, so I know Boston just moved over to the Ember.js community channel. And uh, and I definitely think that um, that if you're not there uh, now, you should you should hop on, and uh, and you know you can ask questions and participate in the greater discussion around Ember. And also, there's a lot of things going on in the Ember community. Um, one of the things we really liked uh, was that there's now a Tomster page on the EmberJS.com uh, website, and our Tomster from Emberjax is on there, uh, obviously. Um, and there's a lot of Tomsters we didn't even know existed. Yeah, I've been uh, I've been uh, kind of looking through this and seeing like some that are familiar and some that aren't. Uh, the deprecation Tomster is my personal favorite with the uh, the little hearing aid that is just a horn. It's super cool and uh, very clever. Uh, so yeah, the Tomster page is uh, is very very cool. And two weeks ago, we did uh, Emberjacks. We had a great turnout and uh, and we were able to continue building the blog. I think we've mentioned it in a previous episode. Uh, the idea is to do an exercise rather than do a, a talk um, so that people can actually get hands-on experience um, because we have a lot of uh, beginner and, and intermediate uh, Ember developers here in Jax. So it's been really interesting and, and really rewarding to see uh, that kind of go ahead, go forth. So uh, we mentioned this before, but we have a Twitter account and we're pretty active on it. So follow at Ember Weekend, all one word. You can you know tweet at us whenever and give us some suggestions and things you'd like to us to talk about yeah i mean we have a finite amount of time on the on the podcast as you you know might expect but uh you know people who ask us good questions on ember weekend we try to uh, try to pull it in and and answer and have a discussion about you know whatever it is and the last thing we want to talk about is uh wicked good embers coming up very soon i think what a week yeah yeah i think 10 days ish we can we can a few we can some change uh i'm getting really excited about it yeah, I can't wait. It's out in Boston. It's on an island. Um, so it's going to be a nice little uh, vacation, and we're going to get to hang out with some cool people. Uh, yeah, a Wicked Good Ember. It's going to be awesome. Come find us. Talk to us. Um, it's going to be a really good time, and uh, and we will uh, be tweeting some some info about, about some of the, the talks as they go on. And uh, yeah, it'll be awesome. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, see you there. And that's it for this Ember weekend. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson. And we'll talk to you next weekend. Yeah, I saw an amazing interchange on Twitter um, between Brian Cartarella and uh, I don't remember who. And they were basically saying this is either the uh, Wicked Good Ember on an island for three days. Uh, It's either the start of a horror movie or going to be the best conference ever. Uh, And then Brian said something to the effect of only time will tell.